Amen, amen, amen. How we doing, church? Doing okay? Good. You look great. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Grab them. Go way to the back. Where do you think we're going to be? First John. See, you're spiritual. Good job. Grab it. Go all the way. Almost to the end of the Bible. If you get the maps, go left a little while. First John's where we're going to be. Um, hey, uh, by way of announcement, just thank you, thank you, thank you for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you that showed up on Friday night to Potter's house to their unity night. How many of you were there? Wasn't that awesome? I mean, it was just amazing. If you missed it, well, not my problem, all right? It was awesome for those of us that were there. Um, so thanks for being there. Hopefully more and more of that kind of thing will happen. Uh, to, today, as we continue in our um, <clears throat> Give Love a Try series, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to talk about the reality that love obeys. Because uh, in, in this generation, in our generation, we have a very skeptical generation, don't we? And I don't know if it's because... Um, Maybe it's just because all of us, maybe throughout all of human history, have really, have, have really had this kind of sensitivity against hypocrisy. But I know that in our generation, we, we really, really cannot stand hypocrisy. And I think maybe it's just because we have access to news all the time, you know. Maybe we have access into people's lives because of social media and 24-hour news all the time. I remember when I was a kid, I'm not that old, I'm 41, but when I was a kid, you had 30 minutes of news a day. That's what you got. 30 minutes, the guy would come home, would read the news, and even then he didn't have enough to fill up all the news, right? There was a little segment at the end that was about just some a cat in a tree, and you were like, that's not real news, they ran out of news. So here's what I think. I think they got it right. I think there's about 30 minutes worth a day, but we got 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so we know everything about everybody. And so I think that fuels this thing in us that we have this sensitivity against hypocrisy. All of us do. We can't stand it. It's why we get frustrated with politicians a whole lot, don't you? I mean, you hear, you hear politicians argue about health care, but they don't have to use ours. Or schools, and they talk about the schools, but no, we're not going to send those kids to the schools that we're making bills about. We've, we've got different options. That kind of thing, right? If, if anytime you hear somebody say one thing and do another thing, there's something in us that's like, ah, it just, it just rubs us really wrong. We don't like it at all. In fact, um, a, a few weeks ago, me and Sean Maxwell, a guy on staff, were eating at Chick-fil-A, you know, Christian chicken, baptized in peanut oil in the name of Jesus. And, and as I talk about it, you're going to want some today, and you can't because they honor the Sabbath, a bunch of Christians, right? And so... We're in Chick-fil-A, and this lady comes walking in, full-on, head-to-toe, McDonald's uniform. On her way to McDonald's, she's in line at Chick-fil-A. And in that moment, I think, okay, I get it. I get it. But if she were trying to sell me a Big Mac there, I'd be like, I don't think I'm going to eat your Big Mac, because you won't even eat your Big Mac. And listen, if you like McDonald's, praise God, you must love Jesus, you want to see him faster. I understand. Eat McDonald's, that's fine. But I'm just saying... When people, if you're not smoking what you're selling and we don't want to buy it, that's just in us. Or in another one that I just love, and by love I mean I just, it just, I think it's comical to me. Um, remember a few years ago when Notre Dame said they were joining the ACC? Do you remember this? All right, I don't like Notre Dame at all. Like most SEC folks, we don't like Notre Dame. Because how do you get NBC all the time and not be that good? Anyway, the athletic director for Notre Dame says this. He says, as they were joining joining the ACC, he says these words, except for football, we are all in with the ACC. And I just want to go, time out, man. Are you dumb or a liar? Which one are you? Because how can you simultaneously be all in except for the most important sport? That's like saying, hey, except for my sin, I am totally perfect. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Now, here's the thing. We're skeptical and we, hate, we can't stand hypocrisy except... 
when you hold up the mirror and you see that you're the hypocrite. And then you go, uh-oh, no, 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 no. I, I need grace. <laughs> right? Or we like to judge other people's actions and yet we want to be judged by our intentions. So what we're going to talk about today is just that, that love obeys. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he starts out this way, my little children. Now let me just tell you this, I am not your dad, you are not my children. John is an elder, he's an older guy in the church, he's writing to his church, and what he sees them as though is his little children, just in the sense that he will be accountable for them one day. And that he loves them enough to discipline them and tell them the truth. And I'll just tell you this, I love this church. I love being the lead pastor of this church, and I don't see you like children at all, but I definitely see my role as a spiritual father here, and I love you too much to just spoon-feed you cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, just, just sweets all day long. And so today, you might feel like, ah, he's kind of stepping on my toes. I hope that I jump up and down on your toes until they bleed and you do something different. And the reason is because I love you too much, and there will be a day, according to Hebrews 13, that I will stand before God and have to give an account, not just for me and mine at the Martin household, but also for you in this church. And so just know that it comes from a place of love. My little children, I am writing these things, and these things that he's writing are First John chapter 1, the things that we've studied the last two weeks. These things that he is writing is that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That, that we proclaim those things to you. And so the first week of this series, we said that love shares, that if you've experienced the love of Jesus Christ, then you can't help but proclaim the good news to other people and tell your friends and family members and coworkers about it. And by the way, you did. Last week, you invited a bunch of people, and they all showed up, okay? There's a lot of people here. That's great. And then uh, uh, the second part of chapter 1 was this. A part of these things was the message. He says this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, and the message of Jesus Christ is not, God is good, you are bad, try harder. That is not the message. The message is, God is good, you are dead, and God came on a rescue mission to bring you to life. And that you will, if you will admit that you're a sinner, that if you believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that it counted for you, and if you'll confess him as Lord and say, okay, you're the boss of me, I'm not the boss of me anymore, then you will be saved rescued, forgiven, and even adopted into his family. Those are the things that he is writing. My children, I am writing these things to you. These things are the assurance of the gospel that you are saved by faith through grace in Jesus Christ, not by doing good things, not by being a good person, but by being rescued by the almighty rescuer. He says, I am writing these things to you so that, here's the so that, so that you may not sin. So he wants you, he's writing these things to you so that you might understand. It's not about improving your behavior so that you will be acceptable for God. But when, the, when you begin to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ at the heart level, that Christ suffered and died for our sins on the cross, and God raised him from the dead on the third day, and you lean your life against that reality, and God invades your heart, then everything changes from the inside out that we may not sin. And I'm just going to tell you, in our kind of culture, it, it, even in an effort here at 1122 to be a movement for all people, that sometimes, sometimes if we're not careful, we can tap out too easy on sin and act like sin's just really not that big of a deal. 
And I get it, I get it, because I, I don't want anybody to think that, that becoming a Christian or following Jesus is about sin management or, or, or about being perfect, but it's about being perfected in what Christ did for us on the cross. So, I mean, even last week, when we got home from church, my, my wife got a little nervous. She's like, um, Joby, you know how you got up there and just confessed a bunch of your sins on stage? I'm like, uh-huh. She's like, well, well, I get a little nervous because I think that there might just be a bunch of road rage going on on JTB and people choking people out at the bars and be like, well, if Pastor Joby does it, I can do it, right? And I get it, I get it. So in this, in this kind of environment that we're trying to create here where, where you're honest with yourself and say, hey, hey, I got a problem and I can say, me too. And you say, hey, I got some issues, me too. And I got struggles and temptations and sin, me too. But in an effort, an effort to understand the gospel John says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. In other words, obedience really matters. That how you live your life really matters. What we're going to find out is how you live is actually a result of who lives in you. And so, most of us can kind of tend towards one of two directions when it comes to the way we live our lives. Some people reject God by going to religion and say, God, I don't need you. I've got this. I'm going to obey all the rules. Whatever he says do, I'm going to do. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to chew. I'm not going to go with girls who do. And because I do that, then you owe me that I will be in right relationship with you. That's called self-righteousness. It is not by your works that you're saved whatsoever. But then, but then the response to that can be, okay, well, I've got this get-out-of-hell-free card. I mean, I found this verse last week, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's what I'll do. I'll go out all week and I'll fill up my sin bucket. And then at the end of every service, whatever service I go to, I'll go down to the altar and I'll dump out my sin bucket and I'll confess 1 John 1, 9 and then I'm scot-free. And then I can go out all week and just work on filling up my sin bucket again. Man, I've got this thing figured out. And if that's your reality, then the gospel is not your reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, is not an excuse to sin. The grace of God is actually the fuel by which we don't sin anymore. So it's not works-based, neither is it cheap grace. Neither of those are salvation. And so these things that he is writing is actually not to get you to question your salvation, but to give you this divine assurance that you are saved if you've admitted that you're a sinner, that you've believed in Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, and you confess Him as Lord. That it, God actually, in 1 John, wants us to be assured that we are saved. Because I'm going to tell you, I grew up in a culture in Dillon, South Carolina, where everybody I knew prayed the sinner's prayer. You know what I mean by the sinner's prayer, right? Where the guy up front would say something and you'd repeat after him and it was like the magic hocus pocus, I'm in. I'm in. From now on, I'm in because I prayed the prayer. But then we were taught, literally we were taught, but, but if Jesus returns and you're sitting in a rated R movie, you are not going to heaven. Do you know how many times I'm sitting in a rated R movie going, please don't come back, please don't come back, please don't come back. Because if you bust me watching Terminator 3, I'm going to hell. And see, the reality is, is that it's the assurance of your salvation that, that produces obedience. It's the assurance of your salvation that produces obedience. Do you know what, do you know what insecurity produces? Father-loathing rebellion. It just does. It's like this week, I'm going out of town. I leave tomorrow. I'll be back Wednesday. And before, anytime I leave, I, anytime I travel, I get my, 
get my kids together, tell them where I'm going, tell them what I'm doing, tell them how much I love them, then I'm going to FaceTime them, and then I'll see them in a few days, and then I might bring them a gift, okay? And they're like, okay, Dad, give me a hug, kiss, high five. Or what if I were to go this way, say, all right, guys, I- I'm going out of town, and I'll be back on Wednesday, or maybe I won't, because maybe I don't really love you, or maybe I don't really love your mom, and maybe I really have a secondary family in South Dakota, and that's where I'm going to go stay, And so I'll tell you what, I'm going to call and check in with mom every other day. And if you're not good enough, then I'm not coming back. But if you are, then and only then will I return. All right, bye guys. Y'all have a good week. What happens? They would be on their best behavior for many hours. Many. But when hours turn into days, which would turn into weeks, you think that would lead to a lifetime of obedience to their dad that they know love them? And discipline them because he loves them. And that that I know my ways are better than theirs. No. You know what they would do? It would turn into father-loathing rebellion. And so the reason that John writes this, these things so that you may not sin, is not so you question your salvation, but you would know that the assurance of your salvation is not based on your performance, but based on Christ's performance on the cross. And that's why he goes on to say, really quickly, all right, we're not even a whole verse in, and he says, so I write these things so that you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, like just in case sin catches you around the corner here, but if anyone does sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Underline the word advocate. So he's saying, obedience matters, the way you live matters, but if you stumble and fall, if you sin, if you rebel against God, and listen, he, he, you know, if I could help John out here, just go ahead and say, and when you sin. Probably not if, but when. And when you sin, then I've got good news for you. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate is the same word in Greek as lawyer. That You have an attorney on retainer, and his name is Jesus. And it's like every time you sin, if you think of God the Father as a judge sitting behind the the big old, you know, big desk thing and and he's sitting up high and looking down on you with his robe and you sin again and then then God goes, oh, there he went again and Jesus, your advocate, your attorney, your lawyer steps in and goes, yeah, I know, I paid for that one. Oh, there he goes again. And this time she promised she would never, ever, ever do that again. I was there. I remember when she prayed that to me. She asked me, if you'll just get me out of this this time, I promise I'll never do it again. And there she goes again. And Jesus, our advocate, steps in and says, and says, I know, I know, I paid for that. But here's the difference. If you get a lawyer, which most of you probably need one, if you get a lawyer, they typically argue for your innocence. But in this case, Jesus is not making a case for you. He's making a case for himself. That's why it says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's not talking about your righteousness. He's talking about his own. He's he's talking about that God made him who's without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made into the righteousness of God. So if anybody does sin, got good news. Not only if you're a Christian do you have the Holy Spirit in you, guiding you and prompting you and teaching you and nudging you, that you also have Jesus Christ, the Son of the Almighty God, the, the perfect Lamb whose blood was slain, at the right hand of God as an advocate on your behalf. Verse 2. He, that's Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins. Say propitiation. I See, I've been taught by like church experts that in a growing church, I'm not supposed to use words like propitiation. 
because they've told me that you don't care and that you can't, you're not smart enough to understand these words. And I think if you can memorize the names of coffee drinks at Starbucks, you can memorize big words, okay? Venti caramel macchiato. Some of you men that drink that need to repent, you understand? Unbelievable. Black coffee. That's your order from now on. All right. Propitiation, propitiation means a payment that satisfies. That's what it means, a payment that satisfies. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't just pay for your sins and cleanse you from your sins. That word's expiation. But he also is the propitiation that not only did, did his, his death and resurrection pay for your sins, but it satisfied the wrath of God. That's why in Isaiah, the Bible says that God was pleased to crush his son. So that when God looks at you now, if you are in Christ, he no longer looks at you with wrath and anger and frustration. But because Jesus is the propitiation, the satisfying payment, that he looks at you, not with wrath, but now favor. That's a big deal. That Jesus is the satisfying payment for our sin. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Of the whole world. You know what this means? There's nobody in this room, there's nobody that's listening to this message ever and ever, ever, ever that that is too far away for God to reach them. There's nothing that you have done that is so bad that God can't save you. That God's grace poured out in Jesus on the cross is infinitely bigger than any of your sin, than any of your mistakes, than any of your selfishness, than any of those things. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, Paul says it this way, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And what he's saying there is this, is that the grace of Jesus poured out on the cross is exponentially larger than any sin that you might have in your life. That when grace and sin go toe-to-toe, it's not even close, it's a first-round KO. It's not even, it's not like, it's not like there's a race between your sin and God's grace. And it's like, it's kind of a photo finish right at the end. You're like, oof, all right, our guy won. No, it's not like that at all. It's like if, if grace and sin were in a race together, then grace just dominates the competition. It's not even close, just squishes the sin in your own life. That, that grace crosses the finish line, does the, the, the interview, Goes into the locker room, showers, puts on a suit, comes back out, does the post-race interview, goes and has dinner, and then, maybe then, sin finally trickles across the finish line. It's not even close. And you know what that means? Because of that exponential grace that God pours out for us on the cross, that means that, that all the sins of the world, all the sins of the whole world can be forgiven in Christ. You see... That's why the Church of 1122 is a movement for all people, all kind of people, people that think they are so bad that God would never love them, that I want this to be a place where they come in and they hear, you know what, God loves you so much that he went all the way to the cross to squish that sin, forgive you, and adopt you into his family, and that it's a movement for all people, even you church people that think you're perfect. I've got good news. By God's grace, you can be saved too. It's harder, but you can be saved too. And in fact, you know, last week, right here, between all of our services, we had 50 people surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 59.1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. 
Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Because sometimes when we think about the grace of God, we think that God's grace is shorter than how far away people are running from him. I mean, think about the people in your mind that you think are hardest to save or farthest away from God. That God could reach out and grab that man and grab that woman, grab your dad, grab your, your children, whatever it is. His arms are so much longer than the distance we try to run. But a lot of times, a lot of times we think of God like he's, like he's T-Rex, you know? Like he's got these little tiny arms and he just, like he wants to hug them, but he just can't get them. And so he's angry and he's got that huge head and his teeth can reach farther than his arms. And that's why he's ticked off all the time. And you think of God like, no, okay, all right, I'm going to kill you. That's what we think about. And this is like the anti-T-Rex arm verse. That behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, but it's infinitely longer than any distance you could run from God. Why? Because the grace poured out on the cross is so much bigger. It's so much bigger. And so he said, verse 3, and by this we know. Underline that in your Bible, we know. You see, John wants you to know. He wants you to know that you know that you know that you have salvation in Christ. And by this, this is how you can know, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Now listen, church, especially if you've been a Christian for a little while, okay? That a lot of times, if you're not careful, we talk about this all the time, a lot of times if you're not careful, you'll think that the gospel is what made you a Christian, but now it's up to you to stay one. That you got this incredible invitation to join the team, but you're on this constant tryout to stay on the team. And John would be like, that, that can't be further from the truth. That the gospel is not just for your justification, but also for your sanctification. That it not only is it by His grace that you were saved and had your sins forgiven, but it's also by His grace that you continue to be a part of the family. And that's why He says, says by this we know that we have come to know Him. God is not a God of confusion. And He wants you to know. And here's how we know. If we keep His commandments. Now you've got to notice the order here. The order is not, if you keep His commandments, then you can know that you'll be saved. It's the exact opposite. It's, it's when you know him, there's something that changes from the inside. And the way that you know that you know him is look at the way you live. And it will demonstrate the truth that you do know him. Because the reality is this. If you don't keep his commandments, you know what that means? That he's not your commander. If Jesus commands you to do stuff and you say, well, I appreciate the advice, but I'm not in. Then... Uh, you, might, you might believe he was a historical figure. You might believe he was a good teacher. You might believe he was a great guy. You might even like his current TV show tonight at 9 o'clock, okay? You may like all of those kinds of things, but if you don't do what he commands, that means that he's not your commander. Another word, commander, would just be Lord. It would just be Lord. But the order here is so important. And anytime, anytime we talk about behavior, always have to be so careful because no matter how clearly I try to articulate it, people still hear it this way. People still hear, if, if I obey, then I will be accepted. You've got to flip-flop that. Because you are accepted in Christ, therefore we obey. I mean, the best example I know of is in a marriage. Do you know why I'm faithful to my wife? Do you know why? The root of it, let me tell you what it's not. Now, these are all practical reasons that make sense, Okay. But, but here's what I just know. We've been married for 15 years, all right? And, and if I were to try again, good luck with that, okay? I could never pull that off again. If you see my wife, you know what I'm saying? 
That's why I got, you get married when you're young and you got nothing, right? Because they don't know what they're doing. You can trick them into it and they make a covenant. They don't have a choice. And so, so first of all, you know, if I tried to do it over, I'm telling you, there's, there's a lot of depreciation going on. Also, this ain't what it was 20 years ago either, okay? This, it, that's struggling, all right? And, and, then, and then also, you know, I've got beautiful kids and a great family and a great life. And, and if I were to be unfaithful to her, do you know how much that would ruin all of that? All right? And not to mention it, but I'm a preacher. This is what I do for a living. I'm pretty sure if I run around on Gretchen, I can't continue to do this. You understand? Now, if those were the dry, driving, motivating factors for my faithfulness, what do you think, what's the kind of relationship that I would have with her? Gretchen, I am so faithful to you. Do you know why? Well, first of all, uh, I don't think I could do better. And then two, I really like our kids. And then honestly, where would I work? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that mentality is, if I obey, then I'll be accepted. And you know what? You know what? It, it, here's, here's the reality. How long would that sustain me? Not very long. Not very long. If some little seductress came up to me and was like, hey, you know, come on. And I thought, ooh, I don't know. But I got to keep my job. That's not going to endure for a long time. Or can you imagine if you went to a wedding and in the vows, that's the kind of thing they were promising or vowing to each other? I, Joby, take you, Gretchen, to be my lawfully wedded wife as long as I can endure. And I will try my best, even if it kills me. Amen. Nobody in there would be like, oh my gosh, always cry at ready. No, you'd be like, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> but the reality is, is the way I live my life and the things I do, they come out of an overflow of the reality that I just love that girl. Regardless of whether I work or not, regardless of whether God gave us kids or not, regardless of who else in this world exists, that's my girl. I love her and she loves me. And it's out of an overflow of that that my response is to do the kinds of things that honor our relationship so that that relationship continues to flourish and grow. And it's similar in your walk with Jesus. One of the people that I think explains it best is the incredible... 20th century theologian, Johnny Cash. I put it in your notes, okay? I mean, his initials are JC. Give me a break, all right? He says this. And it's hard to even read without singing it, but I won't, I promise. JC says, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. You get the order there? What he's saying about June is, I love you, baby, so much. Therefore, that's why I walk the line. Second verse, he says, I find it very, very easy to be true. I find myself alone when each day is through. Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you. Because you're mine, I walk the line. I think First John would say, amen. <laughs> Jesus said that you will know a tree by its fruit. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, which, by the way, that's a lot of us in the room, right? If you consider yourself a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you would say, I know him. That's me, all right? We're like Elf. We're like, I know him. That's what happens. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, we know that the truth is not a what. The truth is a who. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. 
So whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and Jesus is not in him. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might go, yeah, but, but what about last week? I thought last week, didn't you read from the same Bible? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us? Uh-huh. So what you're saying is, if, if, if I say I don't sin, then I'm a liar? Correct. And, I, and if I say I know him, but I don't do what he says, then I'm a liar? Uh-huh. So that means I'm a liar. Ding, 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 ding. You got it. You got it. No matter how you come at this, it's an external problem. But the reality is this, is that God is not trying to just get you to change your moral behavior. But he's trying to change, and he does change your very nature. It is not an outside-in process. It's an inside-out process. That's what he's saying. And so, if you tear away who you are, when you get down to the core of you, you're going to find your identity. And the things that come out of you are going to be what's deep down inside of you. And if the things on the outside of you don't change, I'm not saying that you've got to be perfect, but that Christ is consistently perfecting you, and it's not about your perfection. It's about His perfect work on the cross that gets on the inside of you and then begins to work its way out. Okay? It's like this. If I take this and shake it, what comes out of it? Water. You're like, uh, uh, Jesus? I want Jesus. Jesus! No, it's water. It's a water bottle. So the only thing that can come out of here is what is in there. And so it's not behavior modification, but an inward transformation. It's called, it's called progressive sanctification. And so he's not just saying that if you ever mess up, then you're no longer in. But what he's saying is that when God is in you, he changes you from the inside out. And here's the good news. Some of you, some of you that put your faith in Jesus here at 1122, and you've been a Christian for like a, for like a, a year, all right? You've experienced this. Have you experienced this? Have you found yourself in a situation where normally you would react one way, but now because Christ is in you, you've reacted another way and you surprised yourself? Like husbands, like your wife thoroughly let you down. Come on, just imagine. And you got home, and she was not very, being very nice, and she's talking, and all you can hear is drip, 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 drip. And normally, your response would be like, how dare you? Or you'd punch a car horn, or you'd do something terrible. But in this moment, you go, I forgive you. And then you're like, what was that? Who did, what just happened? Or some of you, 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 you were going to answer somebody at work because of the situation that they had with another coworker, and out of your mouth came a Bible verse. And you were like, oh my goodness, what was that in here? And what has happened is that God has begun to change your very nature, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And so this isn't about just being, just always getting it right. It's about when you do sin, what do you do with it? You bring it to the Father. And yes, we struggle and we fall, but then we repent. And we, and we understand that we're forgiven and we're restored and we're refined. Here's how Proverbs 24, 16 says it. It says, for the righteous fall seven times and rises again. You get that? The righteous. It doesn't say that the righteous don't fall. But when the righteous fall, they understand that Christ, their advocate, has picked them up and dust them off and say, okay, keep going. That the righteous falls seven times, but rises again. Luther, Martin Luther says this, that the essence of understanding that you're a Christian is that you must simultaneously know that you are righteous and that you're a sinner. 
And that when you understand both of those things, that's when you can understand that God is transforming you from the inside out. And the closer and closer and closer you get to him, the more you begin to understand the holiness and the perfection of Almighty God. And you begin to understand the depths of your depravity. That you thought you were bad, it's actually much worse than you think. And as, as your understanding of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the perfection and the love of God increases, and also as your understanding of the depths of your own depravity just go deeper and darker and lower and lower than the thing that gets bigger and bigger and bigger in your life, is you know that the cross of Jesus Christ covers that incredible chasm between you and an almighty God. And it changes the way that you live. And then the reality is just this. That if things aren't changing, then maybe you were never changed on the inside. Um, <clears throat> there was a study about, I don't know, about eight years ago that bothered a lot of church people, like me. Uh, it, it says this, that about 50% of Southerners, okay, 50% of Southerners have prayed some kind of sinner's prayer. Have been in some church or some situation or some, some kind of event where they raise their hand or check the card or pray the prayer that said, hey, I want to be a Christian. But then when they survey all of these people, it says in virtually every study we conduct representing thousands of interviews every year, people that have prayed that prayer fail to display any attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. For instance, when asked to identify activities over the last 30 days of people that have prayed the sinner's prayer, they were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to, to get drunk, to use illegal drugs, to um, have lied about somebody, have gotten back at somebody for something they'd done, or to said something mean behind another person's back. That there was no difference. Now all I'm saying is that could be evidence that if things aren't changing on the outside in some manner, then maybe something didn't change on the inside. And again, I know some of you are like, oh, man, you know what? Who are you to tell me? I'm not here to tell you anything. I'm just trying to tell you what Jesus would tell you. And if you run to him for help, look at this. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a scary verse. That's a real scary verse as a pastor. I want every single one of you in here, every single one of you, to know him as your Lord. Not just show up to church and do church stuff and be surprised one day for all of eternity. The Bible is very clear that on the day of judgment, there will be some surprised people. I, I want to do my best to make sure that none of the surprised people in line here are ever 1122ers. Because you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is heaven. Here's what his will is. That you would surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That you wouldn't cheapen his grace and say, I can do whatever I want, and he'll still have to forgive me. No, that, that he would be your Lord and your commander. It's also not, I'm going to clean my life up so that, he, so that he has to accept me. But his will is that you would surrender. Verse 22 of, Luke's, of Matthew 7 says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now let's just be honest. If I was standing next to like if me and you went on a mission trip, and you cast out a demon? Like if we walked into a village and some little kid comes out just blah, and head spun around and pea soup came out of their mouth, I was like, I don't know what to do. And you were like, I got this. 
And you pulled out your squirt gun of holy water and you had a cross and you were like, and you squirted it and the demon was like, and left. I would think, I think he's in, right? Because I'm going to tell you, I've never cast out a demon. The closest I've ever come is I sent a seventh grader home from middle school when I was at camp. You know what I'm saying? I just, I just kicked him out. That's the closest. I would look at this person and I'd probably go, I think you're in. But Jesus would say, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But it's obvious here that it's not just an outside-in morality change. Or Luke 6, 46, he says this. This is very clear. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. In other words, if you do not obey my commands, then I am not your commander. John goes on in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. You want to know? I want to know. You want to know? Here's how we know. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought not to walk in the same way, or ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. In other words, if you know him, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, then over time, not overnight, but over time, the way you walk or the way you live begins to change. Now, here's the thing. That word abide is not a word that we use much anymore, Right? I mean, none of you single guys in here are going to go up to some single girl and be like, hey, after church, you want to go abide with me? All right? No, you're not. You shouldn't. That's weird, okay? That's probably why you're single. So it just means stay close. That's what it means. It's a relational term. Jesus uses it in John chapter 15 when he says, he gives this parable, and he says, it's like this. God's the gardener, and I'm the vine, and you're the branches. And whoever abides in me or stays close to me, you can do anything I fuel you and call you to do. But apart from me, you can't do anything. And so, so the way you change your walk, the way that your walk begins to look more and more and more like Jesus, is not, it's not behavior modification. It's not sin management. Again, that's what I was taught growing up. That there are good Christians and there are bad Christians. And if you want to get, be a good Christian, then what your job is, is to grab hold of your sin and to push it down. And with all of your might and all of your discipline and all of your self-will, then you were just to hold these sins way down here. And let me tell you, you can do that. I mean, I can motivate you to do that today for many hours. I could. I could. At the end, we could play the right song and get you to fill out stuff and make a promise. And from now on, I'm never going to do this stuff again. And you'd grab your sin and you would hold it down. And I'm telling you, you, some of you real mature Christians, by Tuesday, you'd still be holding on to that thing. Sweat just coming down your head, and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. That's how you would be. And then the problem is, is that if it's up to you, I promise it's going to fail because it's exhausting. And then when you let it go, it's crazy. It seems to get bigger. And then you think, oh, I guess somebody's going to give up. So Jesus doesn't say that, hey, listen, the answer here is try harder. He says the answer is here, here is stay closer. The answer is not just do more stuff. The answer is stay closer to him, abide in him, be in that kind of relationship with him. The Puritans called it vivification and mortification. Vivification means you do those things in your world that stir your affections for Christ. And mortification is you you kill the sin in your life because if you don't kill it, it will be killing you. It's just like every other relationship that you have that... 
in my family, I don't just assume that just because that just because we all have the last name that we're going to have this tight family. So the vivification for the Martins is that we spend time together. I take my wife out on dates. We do family vacations. We play board games together. We do things that stir our affections towards one another. Because And what we found as we abide together as a family, it's not so much about the list of do's and don'ts and the rules. Yeah, sure, we have boundaries, but, but it's, just about, it's just about stirring up those affections. And I believe in mortification at my house. You break into my house in the middle of the night and try to harm my family, guess what happens? I'm going to kill the sin that's trying to kill us. And I don't mean that as an illustration. I mean, like, literally, I'll shoot you in the face with my shotgun, okay? In Jesus' name. Promise. And so, because here's the thing. If you think, if you, if you hear this message... If you hear this message and you leave out of here and you think, ah, i got to do better, you'll miss the whole point. Because what will happen, you'll have two things. You'll have regret and resolution. You'll have regret because you've been doing things that are out of line with the way God has created you to live if you're a Christian. And then then you'll have resolution. Okay, I'm going to try harder and do better. I'm just telling you it won't work. Instead, what you have to do is you have to lean in to him. You've got to abide in him and do whatever it takes to stir, continuously stir your affections for him. And meanwhile, kill those things that are killing you. I love the fact that he used the word walk. I wish I could think of a better illustration for this. I've used it a bunch of times, but it's the best illustration I can think of. The thing that you have to understand here is that God, when he's watching you walk, that he's a good dad. And because Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, that God no longer looks at us, if you're a Christian, with, with um, kind of a discontent or a frustration. But he looks at you, if you're a follower of Jesus, he looks on you with favor. And as you're learning to walk as a Christian, it doesn't mean that you will not stumble and fall. But it, what it does mean is that you've got, a, you've got a good God in heaven that loves you and is cheering you on. Everybody that's got a kid... that. You've experienced this, okay? You remember when your kids first started learning to walk? Ours went from like the belly crawl, and, and then they just skipped over the crawl, and they went straight to walking. And you remember those days when they would first start climbing up on stuff, and they would be like, oh, this is different, you know? They were up like that, and then, and then they would start, what's it called, cruising, you know? And they would cruise around places like this, and they would try to headbutt every sharp project in your whole house, and so you got like the whole place padded up. And then sometimes they would let go, and then they would get the, the wobbles, and they grab back on. And in that moment, what did you know? You knew it was getting close. So from then on, you're walking around with your phone on record all the time, just in case. And then sure enough, one day, when it wasn't planned, they would get up, and they would let go. And then somebody, usually mom, gets their attention. And they're like, oh. Uh, and, they, and then they, what happens is, they don't mean to do this. But God has created little babies with these enormous craniums. Huge. Think about it. Your baby cannot touch their hands over their head. Think about how, how big your head would have to be for that. Like, uh, can't get it. That's how big their head is, okay? So this enormous cranium looks at mom and then starts tilting that way. And then it's just, it's just momentum taking over at that point. And as their head is leading them to, to certain destruction, what do they do? It's walk or die. That's your option. And so they stick out one foot and then another and then another and then boom. And they fall down. And in that moment, what do you do as a parent? He's walking. I mean, you go crazy. You're clapping. You're cheering. You're, did you get it on video? Instagram. Shh, hashtag walking. You know, you're doing those things. All your grand, family is like, 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 you are freaking out. And the dad is like, that looked like a running back move to me. Just see how at the end he kind of threw that thing out. That's my boy, you know? 
And you just celebrate it like crazy. In Christ, if you were in Christ, I'm telling you, anytime you have those moments where you begin to walk in the same way in which he walked, even if it's the, even if it's the tiniest little baby step, here's what I need you to understand. That God in heaven celebrates and goes, hey, he's walking. He's not spending all of his time talking about, look at that kid, he just fell down. What is wrong with you, boy? Get up and quit crying. No! He just picks you up and dusts you off and celebrates every step. So for some of you, listen, for some of you, this is your second week in a row here. And let me tell you, here's what heaven does. (gasps) They're back. He's walking. He took a step. He walked in the room. They came to the 9 o'clock service. All right? Wow. For some of you, you're going to walk into the Connect Center today and you're going to be like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to try to do this life alone. I want to get in a group. And heaven goes, he's walking. Some of you are going to sign up to serve. Some of you are going to, whatever it is, whatever it is that we serve a God that's not pointing out the, the failure and the fall, but he's picking you up and in Christ dusting you off again and say, okay, okay, keep going. And when you stumble and when you fall, then you cry out and you repent and God restores you and refines you. And then, and then over time, guess what? You're walking more and more and more like him. Here's the point. I didn't even make it up. A friend of mine in North Carolina said it, so I just stole it. That God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. That God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. That's why he writes these things to us, so that we might not sin. It's not the reward for having liberated ourselves. You know, almost every week right now I'm telling a JP baseball story because he's in baseball season. And he heard me a couple weeks ago. He said, uh, Dad, I heard you told everybody that we got slaughtered. I was like, yeah, I did, because we did. He goes, well, you think you could tell one where we won? I was like, all right, well, let me think. So last week, <laughs> we're playing baseball, and we're dominating. I mean, dominating. Dominating. And that's good. And so, by the way, if your kid's really, really good, and you want them to go to heaven, have them come see me, okay? Nine-year-old team. We're always looking for athletes. And so we're out on the baseball field, and we had this rule in our league that you can only score eight runs in an inning. And, you know, I think it's because everybody's a rainbow and a skittle and it'll hurt somebody's psyche if they get dominated, but whatever. And so there we are, and we're, we're going into the last inning, and we're up, we're up 10 to 1, all right, 10 to 1, going into the last inning. And our head coach says, JP, you're on the mound. So he's going in as the closer. And we always make a big deal about our closer pitchers, you know, because this is the end of the game, and let's finish it out well and all of that. And JP's not thinking through the eight-run rule, but I know it. And so I grab him on his way out to the mound and said, JP, let me tell you something. Listen, the score right now is 10 to 1. There's this eight-run rule. They they can't score any more than eight runs in this inning. And so here's what this means. We won. No matter what, no matter how you perform out there, guess what? We won. He's still looking at me kind of clueless like you are. And so I go, all right, so listen. You could hit every kid in the head with the ball, and we still win. That's how this goes down. And he's like, okay. And I was like, so listen. So just rear back and throw it as hard as you can. You've got absolutely nothing to lose. Just go out and do your thing. And so he gets out on the mound, and he's facing the first batter up is the last kid in their lineup, okay? And just between us, he's not very good. I checked. He doesn't go here. Okay, it's fine, but he's not awesome. And so... JP gets up and walks him, walks him. And you never want to walk the first batter up. You never want to walk the last batter in the lineup. And he looks at me with that kind of worried face. And I looked at him and go, bro, it don't matter. 
just ran back and had fun. It don't matter. We can't lose. And then their first batter comes up, you know, second in the lineup, or first in the lineup, second in the inning. And typically you put, like, one of your very best kids up there. And JP throws it down the middle, and this kid ropes it to the outfield. Boom. And so now they've got runners on first and third, and he looks at me, and I'm like, bud, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Great pitch. It doesn't matter. And then he begins to get it. Because you understand. And then the number two batter is up, right? And typically your second batter is a great hitter. And JP gets up there and boom, strikes him out looking. And he looks at me. I was like, I told you. Just have fun. Throw strike. Next kid gets up. Number three in their lineup. And then he grounds out to second base. Now we got two out. Still got guys on base, all right? And I look at him. Doesn't matter. Then their fourth, their, their, their cleanup hitter comes up, all right? And this is the... Nine and ten year old league, and this kid walks up, and I'm pretty sure he's been shaving for like a month. Like, you know, it's like we might want to see an ID on that horse, right? Guy kind of gets up here. As soon as he steps up, the whole place goes back up, back up. You remember that? You know those kids? I was the kid. I was little. When I'd get up there, and be like, "Easy out." I'm like, "Really? That's what you're gonna say to me right now?" This kid is like, "Back up, back up." JP throws foul ball. I mean, he cranks a foul ball. Like, if it had been fair, I wouldn't be telling the story. And then the next one, same thing, foul ball. And then the third one, swing and a miss. Boom, and he strikes out one of the best hitters in the whole league. And then you know what we did in that moment? Man, we jumped up and we cheered as if he saved the game. We run out there and we high-five. Why? Because we won. So here's the reality in your life. Let me just tell you the truth. It's the bottom of the ninth. And I've read to the end of the book, and good news, in Christ, we won. We won. We won. Therefore, don't be afraid. No matter what the pitch count is, just rear back and give it your best. And if you hit everybody in the ear hole, whatever, we won. And if you strike out the best hitter in the league, congratulations, we won. And so, because we won, may we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, to be reminded of this, to be reminded of this, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion. And we're going to try to do it in a way that we've never done it before. If you're in the sanctuary, uh, ushers are just going to pass it out to you because you're our special guest. But if you're in, if you're in this room with me, then, then if you're on the end row, then you have a basket under your seat. So you're like an usher, and you're a lot of spiritual authority here. And just go ahead and take either the bread or the cup and pass it down. And whoever it gets to in the middle, you're going to have to be like Neo from the Matrix, okay? And you've got to get them all going at one time, all right? And pass those out. And here's why, here's why we want to do communion today. And by the way, if you do this well, this is how we'll do it from now on, because it's faster, okay? And here's the thing. On the night Jesus was betrayed... He washes his disciples' feet, he serves them, and he comes back to the table, and it was a, they were celebrating Passover, so he'd, they'd all had this Passover meal about a million times, or once a year for their whole lives. And he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body broken for you. And what the reason he did that is because he was saying, listen, you're not a mistaker in need of a life coach, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And that Jesus Christ was going to the cross to have his body crucified and broken on our behalf because we need it because we need it and then in Corinthians Paul tells us that whenever the church gets together to celebrate holy communion 
that we are to examine our hearts before we are to partake of communion, okay? And so in this moment, I just want you to take a, take a few seconds. Take a few seconds and just examine your heart and say, God, where are the places in my life and I have not been walking the way I should be walking? Where are the places in my life and I'm not obeying your commandments? And then you just confess those things. And then you repent of those things. And the repentance is not, God, I promise from now on I'm going to try harder. But the confession is, Holy Spirit, I need you in me. Jesus, as my advocate, as my righteousness, I need you in me. Continue to transform my inward nature to reflect you more and more and more. And as often as you eat of this bread, do so in remembrance of me. And then he holds up the cup. And I think this is where he freaked out the disciples. Because again, they're already a little freaked out because Jesus isn't doing the normal rabbi stuff for Passover. But when he holds up the cup, he says, this is my blood. Now again, he hadn't been crucified yet, so they have no idea what he's talking about. But what he's talking about is that when he goes to the cross, that his blood, the shed blood of the perfect Lamb of God, is going to cover over and take away the sins of all mankind. And so when he holds up this cup, he says, this is my blood, and it is the new covenant. Now, the old covenant, or the Old Testament, was about the law. And when you broke the law, then every year, you had to sacrifice a lamb to cover over your sin, and it was good for one year. But in the new covenant, the new covenant is not just about law, but the new covenant is about grace and about mercy. And not only is God just, but he is our justifier. And so, when we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For anybody that would admit they are a sinner, believe when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for them, and then confess Jesus as their Lord. And so when you drink this, what he's saying is this to remind you that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And what is finished is the control that sin used to have over your life. And now... No longer does it have any control, but it is finished. And he says, as often as you drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. And the Bible says in the epistles that when the early church would get together and they would celebrate at the Lord's table, then when they would leave, they would leave singing songs and psalms and spiritual hymns. And so that's what we're going to do now. If you would please stand and pray with me. And after we pray, we're going to sing together. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much. God, I thank you that you're a good dad and you celebrate every step we take. God, I thank you that the victory is in you. That the game has already been determined. That no matter what the enemy does, that we have victory in you. So God, with that in mind, because of that blessed assurance, God, may we just rear back and throw it as hard as we can. God, may we walk out of this place and may we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for anybody in here that might not know you, God. Maybe today they would surrender their life to you. And God, for those of us that claim to know you, God, may by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, by the love of a heavenly Father, God, may we be able to walk like you walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, we respond to the gospel. 
And so we're going to sing together, just like the Bible says, after communion. Uh, we're going to respond by some of you may need to come and lay some things down at the altar. You can do that. You can cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And if you're a regular here at 1122, we would invite you to bring your first and your best, your tithes and your offerings, because he first loved you by giving us his best in Jesus Christ. Let us respond.